What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. This is the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network. back to horror queers we're talking freudian red heels we're talking daria nicolodi's voluminous hair and we're talking perverts and i'm joe (laughs) and i'm trace and we're talking about a love joe a love that knows no bounds and that is the love between a man and his hat yes oh my gosh (laughs) i had forgotten how much he can rock a hat and how good he looks yeah john saxon man there's a lot in this movie that i'm like why but i also kind of like it because i'm like why why is this here yeah you gotta just go with it you gotta let it happen you gotta make sure that you don't let that hat get away (laughs) we're talking dario argento's tenebrae everybody and i think this is our first foray into giallo cinema Okay, so I wanted to check on that because I legit can't remember. I feel like we talked about Giallo's before, and yet this is for sure our first Argento film. Everyone, lest you think that I'm here to shit on this film because I have made my distaste for Giallo's painfully clear in the past, I actually do like this movie quite a bit because it doesn't follow a lot of the typical... I mean, it is a Giallo through and through, but like the issues that I have with the narratives of Giallo, of Gialli don't really pertain to this film for me. Well, yeah, because it's really half of a Giallo film. Yeah. And then it turns into something completely different. (laughs) Kind of. (laughs) But before before we get too ahead of ourselves, um, we actually do have a special guest on this this episode. So ladies and gentlemen and everyone in between, you know him as the host of the Dead for Filth podcast or maybe his countless contributions to the world of queer horror, but you most likely know him, because that's how we know him, from our guest spot on last year's episode on Psycho 2, because that's his most famous thing he's done. Obviously, yes. Please welcome Michael Verratti. I'm so excited to be back. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming (laughs) to talk Tenebrae. Oh, I am thrilled. I'm a long, long time fan of Dario Argento, and I love this movie. And uh, I do love that I get to always come back to talk about uh, psychosexual stabbings with you. So, oh, yeah, yeah, you really have a type. Mm-hmm. What's that about? <laughs> Let's unpack it in Freudian terms, shall we? <laughs> oh, man. Oh, there is a lot going on here. And yet, I'm not going to lie, I do feel like this is a strangely accessible film. Like, if you wanted to teach Freudian psychology to people, you could say, let me tell you about the boy who murdered women and stole their heels. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, I, I would agree with that. I mean, I won't harp on this too much because I don't think I don't I don't want to be a hater here. You know, my issues with Giallo are typically like just it's kind of meandering narrative and the dubbing I'm never a fan of. I, I really hate it. It takes me out of the film so much to the point where I, I just can't get into it. And this one has some of that, but en- it's lightened enough compared to something like Deep Red, which unfortunately is a film that I don't particularly care for. That it's, yeah, I would agree. It's more accessible for someone who may not be as well-versed in Italian horror cinema. (laughs) Which is interesting, though, because as far as giallos go, this is one of the pinnacles. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's it's one of the most highly lauded uh, of the genre that he made and, and beyond. So, oh, yeah, it both stands apart, but is also definitive. I agree with that. And everyone, if you haven't seen this movie or if you're trying to find it, it is streaming on Shudder. Because we're going to enter spoilers now. But I'm saying that because I think what I like about it is that it's almost like the, the film is divided into two halves, really. So there's no room for a meandering narrative where we go off and follow some character we don't care about. Because it's an uh, hour and 40 minutes and you've got two killers. Like one killer for one half and another killer for a second half. So it never, the pacing never really slows for me in this film. Okay, but I am going to call some bullshit on the idea that this film does not have weird meandering things. Oh, no, it does. There's like a 10-minute <laughs> sequence where a girl gets chased by a Doberman. Okay, but that scene is hilarious. <laughs> it is ridiculous, and the dog literally chases her to the killer's house. <laughs> I mean, I think what happens, too, when people talk about Argento is they tend to neglect how often he really plays with humor. Yeah. And very overtly, I mean, the, the dog is, as, as Trace pointed out, it's sort of absurd. And you see this in a lot of his early work, especially the Giallos, mm-hmm. where there's just this sort of sense of almost slapstick whimsy that's that's woven into very serious and, and gruesome stories. I mean, even John Saxon's whole thing with the hat that you alluded to is yeah. easily could have could be part of a comedy film. Yes, Absolutely. I mean, again, Argento made this at a point in his life where he was trying to defy expectations, and it was also kind of a very personal and meta film for him. But at the same time, yeah, I mean, I mean, and we'll talk about it in detail later, but this is a movie where there's a fucking two-and-a-half-minute crane scene just because. Just because. Because you know what? He was the fucking king of Italian horror cinema, and he could. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which I kind of love. Yeah. Yeah. So, Tenebrae... Again, and y'all can correct me if I'm wrong on any of this, but I think I've done my research pretty thoroughly, so fuck off. (laughs) Basically, in 1977, Suspiria turned Argento into... It made him a household name in the world of horror, you know? He then made the... Well, I call it a sequel, but I guess it's like a... People like to call it a spiritual sequel. Inferno in 1980. But he had trouble making it. He was not only sick during the entire process, but I guess with the U.S. distribution um, with 20th Century Fox... It was really kind of fucked, and it disillusioned him from Hollywood politics, and the film itself was critically and commercially panned. I've actually seen it, and I actually kind of like it (laughs) a little bit. What's different from Suspiria, and you're not a fan of that film? No, but I I will confess that Suspiria is a movie that I like a little bit more each time I watch it. I still don't love it. I can't say that I love it, but I don't dislike it anymore. I'll put it that way. All right. Progress. (laughs) Well, I think that Inferno also is a lot, it gives a lot of precursor for what we get with Tenebrae, even though Inferno is more of in the supernatural cycle of things that he does, as opposed Mm -hmm. to the Giallo cycle. Inferno does the thing where we have sort of 
rotating protagonist and Mm. the main focal point changes a few times just like the killer in this movie switches at a certain point right you can see him start to really play with those ideas that become very prevalent here yeah i i would agree with that and i mean also say what you will about inferno but i think we can all agree well except for joe because he hasn't seen it that it's light years better than mother of tears Sure. I mean, they're so very different, too, because he he was definitely sick making it, but also he had the benefit of having Mario Bava on set of Inferno. Mm -hmm. In a way, that movie is... It's like a co-direction, right? Yeah. Those two together really kind of gave birth to this kaleidoscopic fever dream that only both of them on one set could do. And so Inferno, while a commercial failure for fans of Giallo, is visually a feast. I mean, every Mm -hmm. scene is just color, color, color. The underwater ballroom, that scene with death and the fire, it's so beautiful. Mm -hmm. And actually, I'm I'm glad that you kind of mentioned his sense of humor, though, because even though I don't like Mother of Tears, it's kind of a film, though, that has a lot of funny moments, and I don't ever really know if they're intentional, but maybe, maybe, rewatching it, I'll see it in a different light. We'll see. It's kind of hard to watch later Argento films because I think what happens to him is what befalls a lot of these masters of horror where they start off and have these really great careers and then in the back half or maybe towards the tail end when they're a little bit less prolific, they start to just repeat themselves or their ideas and their visual eye isn't quite as strong. Like We like to bash on people like Carpenter and... So I'm going to pile onto that because I would actually say that comparing Argento's career like first half to back half to Cronenberg's career first half to back half would actually be quite comparable. Except Cronenberg's more of a sellout and I don't know if we can say that about Argento. But that's the thing though. Cronenberg was a sellout and is just going through the Hollywood route. Argento rejected the Hollywood route and just went off and did his own thing. Both of them, I would argue, have had careers that kind of floundered in that back half. Yeah. Because of the different choices they made. It's a matter of resources too. In the 70s, when Cronenberg and Carpenter really kind of hit their stride, it was also the era of the auteur, where the Mm -hmm. filmmaker as artist was really given agency to go about and flood a ballroom so they can have a single scene, (laughs) or do some of the crazy things that Carpenter was able to pull off that defined that John Carpenter aesthetic, the things that Argento did that defined the Argento aesthetic. And then... As that era sort of went away and we shifted back more to studio autonomy, mm-hmm. people were not willing to finance these movies that needed these big f- flights of fancy to happen. Right. And so you see some filmmakers sort of either become derivative of themselves or unable to execute the vision that they want. So the movies do seem lackluster, I guess, because they in some way probably lost the spirit because how do you go back? I mean... There are filmmakers out there who stopped making movies for the reason that once you make a $5 million movie, you don't want to make a $1 million movie. Mm -hmm. Right. John Waters has a script that's been going around Hollywood for years, but he doesn't want to make it for a lower budget point than the movies he's made in the past because he sort of earned that right. And it's interesting because it does change the dynamic of, of the movies they make and I think probably the spirit in which they make them. I would agree with that. And just to kind of piggyback onto that. So yeah, basically after Inferno, you know, he was, Argento was disillusioned. And so he was very much like, okay, I want to, I'm going to take a break from this franchise, this trilogy of mine, and I'm going to go, I'm going to defy expectations. So he decided to go do another Giallo film, which he hadn't done since Deep Red in 1975. So he comes up with Tenebrae. 
The inspiration for this film was birthed from two specific incidents in Argento's life that happened in 1980. He did have a stalker that was obsessed with Suspiria that basically kept calling him. And I was thinking about this today, and I was like, God, could you imagine if this happened today? Because it would be social media everywhere. But the fan, like, would initially... It started out kind of innocently, where the fan was like, oh my god, I love your work. And then it was kind of like oh, Suspiria affected me so negatively, so I want to hurt you the way Suspiria hurt me, and things like that. Hmm. There were, and I believe death threats eventually happened as well. It was really not great. And then the same year, he also stayed at the Beverly Hilton, um, where a Japanese tourist was shot dead in the hotel. And around the same time, there was a drive-by shooting outside a local cinema. And so he was attracted to the senseless or random killing in the film, and so combining that with his stalkery and, like, you know, people u- using a film that inspired them to want to kill someone, that's kind of where Tenebrae came from. Hmm. Out of curiosity, do you know if that stalker was male or female? I think it was male. I think it was male. Yeah. As far as I know, yes, that's true. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot to be made about the doubling in this movie, you know, not just in, like, The fact that the film is divided into two halves with two different killers, both men, characters literally appear and take the form of another person or like the space of another person. But I don't know. This film is psychosexual, as you said, Michael. And I think there's something interesting to play around with in terms of like, who does the killing? Who is the victims? But also what is the inspiration for the killings? Well, it's interesting you mentioned doubling, too, because, Joe, I think that you and I had exchanged messages at some point this summer where I had told you at one point uh, American Cinematheque here in Los Angeles had done a series where they were doing Argento de Palma double features. Right. And they really, really zeroed in to this idea of doubling identities that is a thread through both of their work because aesthetically except for here and there they're kind of very different filmmakers yeah but the fact that both of their movies especially at this time and their oeuvres of of this era really kind of hinge upon identity and the break of identity and the psychosexual implications of that it kind of made for an interesting pairing if i recall tenebrae played with obsession which was Mm -hmm. a very odd double feature. Yeah, it's not the one you'd expect, right? (laughs) No. I mean, I could have even seen it more with, uh, you know, Blowout or Dress to to Kill. Kill. I was going to say Dress to Kill might seem the most appropriate to me. Or maybe just the most obvious. Maybe that's the reason why. Yeah, (laughs) that's why they went with Obsession. (laughs) But, you know, it is interesting. I do think, though, that, so again, those two instances are the middle-listed as the major influences, but I think it's also important to note that at this point, so he's still with Daria Nicolodi in this time frame, but they hadn't fully put to bed their issue with Suspiria, which, and I don't know this entire story, but I guess she had contributed some major story components to Suspiria, allegedly, and didn't get a credit for it. And so their relationship was kind of on the rocks. And so I do wonder if a part of that was kind of fueled into this too, with especially all like the female killing in the film. Yeah. It's hard to say with any certainty what yeah. happened, except for the fact that they did have a not great working relationship by this point in their respective careers. Yeah. And she had asked to play Jane because she wanted a smaller role in the film because she didn't, you know, want to be... <laughs> that present for it but basically the american actress playing Anne, i guess bailed at the last minute and so he asked her to do it and she was like yeah i guess i will and i think she's brilliant i mean i'm (laughs) such a huge fan of daria nicolodi that i think that seeing her in this is just completely it's that magic it's that era of them together that 
does lose something after she and he part ways. Well, she also makes what is honestly one of the less interesting characters in the film. Like, she imbues her with kind of a personality that she's like a little bit of a spitfire, and it doesn't seem like it, it comes mostly, I think, from her performance as opposed to the way that she's written. Oh, 100%. Yeah, there's actually been some pretty significant criticisms of the way that specifically Italians, but even more specifically, Italian women are written in this film compared to the American counterparts. And it's funny because I didn't actually know who she was the first couple of times I watched this film, but Mm -hmm. Anne was always where my eye goes. Like, I find Anne just a completely captivating character, and I think I realized on this rewatch that it's not Anne that I'm attracted to, it's Daria. Daria, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, she's phenomenal. I really have always said that she deserves a renaissance in horror. I would love to see her in more movies, and I know that she she does act in Europe, so Mm -hmm. I'm getting to say that from a very isolated in the States kind of point of view. But right. But she's probably in films that we don't get to see, right? Yeah. And I think that I, as, as a huge fan of her, would love to see her in more things that we have access to. Also, as a screenwriter, because I do recognize her contributions to Suspiria as well as to many other Italian mm-hmm. horror films, that she was writing these movies at that time. You know, when we talk about women in horror, I think that her contributions as a screenwriter in the 70s don't get mentioned enough and ought to be. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It sucks too, right? Because it's a sign of the times. Nowadays, it'd be like, uh, no, you're going to give her that screenwriting credit. Well, but that's the thing, though, right? Like, if she was like, you know, I mean, obviously, she's still alive. But like, if she was like, you know, in her prime today, I mean, she wouldn't be making these giallos because people don't really make many giallos anymore. But I bet if she wrote one, it would be killer. Oh, 100%. (laughs) It'd be killer. (laughs) So yeah, they start filming, uh, I was about to say Suspiria. (laughs) They start filming Tenebrae on May 3rd, 1982, and they shoot it for about 10 weeks in Rome, mostly. The big difference with this film, so Argento wanted to adopt a modern style of photography, deliberately breaking with the legacy of German expressionism, and honestly, the color palette that's characteristic of most Gialli, So a lot of films are shot in the daylight, a lot of harshly overlit interiors. He wanted to give the film a slightly futuristic look, um, which, okay. I don't think it quite works, or maybe it just doesn't work for us because it still looks old now, like from a contemporary point of view. That was my thought process, too, because I read that piece of information before I rewatched the film, and I was like, I just, I don't know. It It looks like 70s to me. Like, you know, I I wasn't alive, so I don't know what futuristic 1982 would look like. (laughs) (laughs) And so, uh, oh, I guess we didn't point point this off off the bat, but this is our second foray back into video nasty territory for anyone who listened to our episode on Island of Death last month. Though I would argue that this one doesn't fully earn its video nasty status compared to that film. Not at all. And it's shocking to me that this actually made the short list. So this wasn't on the 72 list. This is like in the 30s list, which means that it went to court and it was banned, which is yeah, insane well, to me. Also, it was like four seconds that was like censored from the film compared to the 13 plus minutes of Island of Death. Mm-hmm. So this comes out in Italy on October 28th, 1982. Well, and when you're talking about the video nasties list, you're specifically referring to the one in the UK, correct? Yes, yes. correct. Because this movie is still banned in Germany. Yeah, it is still banned in Germany. In its entirety, you're right. But, like, when it was released in Italy, which was October 28th of 82, it was still cut. Like, it wasn't seen in its entirety. But the big issue was Jane's death when her arm gets cut off and she basically paints the wall with her blood, which is awesome, by the way. Right. That gets cut a lot. 
But then, weirdly enough, um, in the 90s, when they did TV reruns of that film, the scene was pretty much cut to nothing because the actress that played Jane, Veronica Lario, was married to the uh, Italian Prime Minister Silvio Berlusconi, and he didn't want the public seeing his wife explicitly murdered, so he had that scene cut, like trimmed exponentially from its original release. Well, that's one way to do it. Marry the president and... Uh... Cut yeah. out your film. <laughs> the film was released in the UK a, uh, a little less than a year later. It's May 19th, 1983. It was shorn of five seconds of sexualized violence. There was also an advertising campaign, which is also the cover of the Blu-ray with a woman with her throat slit. They replaced the slit throat with a red ribbon around her neck. <laughs> which I think kind of works. It's fine. What's wild, because the first copy of this that I ever purchased was on Laserdisc, and I will let the audience decide how old I am based on that. <laughs> oh, yes. And the actual Laserdisc cover features the unedited artwork, but not only is it that, like, violent, like, head through the glass on the cover, but on the back, oh, yeah. it was, like, bare boobs. Oh, really? They really wanted you to buy this on Laserdisc. They're oh, like, man. this is a naughty, naughty film, and it's time to get it. <laughs> when in doubt, put the boobs on display. And the British Board of Film Classification, the BBFC, actually agreed. When they released it on VHS in 1983, later that year, they had four seconds cut out. But then, yeah, that's when it ended up on the video nasties list. And a lot of film historians agree that it isn't deserved, but they think that it's not necessarily the actual murders themselves, but rather the sexualized way in which they're presented, which got it on the list. That ban lasted until 1999, when it was legally released on videotape with one second of footage removed, in addition to the previously censored five. It wasn't until 2003 when they reclassified the film and passed it without any cuts. Unfortunately, in the United States, we really got fucked with this film. This did not come out in the States until 1984, and they released a heavily edited version of the film under the title Unsane. It was approximately 10 minutes shorter than the European release and was missing nearly all of the film's violence, which effectively rendered the mini horror sequences incomprehensible. And certain scenes that had key narrative moments <laughs> were removed, which also made the film difficult to follow. So I don't know what was going on in the States during all that. Uh, Ronald Reagan was <laughs> going on in the States. But it's kind of shocking, right? Because... If you see the film, like, we're in a position where we get to see this film uncut or uncensored, and there's nothing in here that I would argue is worse than what we were seeing in American slashers. And I know that if you look at the production history of Friday the 13th films at this point, they're also getting hacked to bits. But it's just, it's surprising to me. Not quite yet, because I don't really think the hacking came into play in Friday the 13th until about the sixth film, which would have been 86. And also, and, you know, we can get into this as we get into the plot of the movie, and this goes sort of back to a very long-time fascination that I have with Argento of this era, period, is what this movie is doing that we're not seeing stateside is, is presenting queer characters living their lives as they are mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. without any sense of, like, taboo. Yes, like, bad things happen, and there is scandal in this movie, but the way, for example, the lesbian characters are presented, mm -hmm. it is not the fact that they are lesbians that is taboo or perverse or whatever. It's everything going on around them, which in 1982 or 84 for America, <laughs> in Reagan's America, to present that and not make that be the air quotes issue, yeah. I can see the conservative government like railing against that. And Argento has a long history of including queer characters in his movies presented in a 
positive or normalized, if you want to use that word light, which was light years beyond any filmmaker that was doing it in America. You're right. And Italian sensibilities on queerness was, as expected for 1982, quite conservative. And so he even said he was like, I just wanted to do this to show them living. And again, to tie it back to Island of Death from last month, like it's kind of the same concept where it's like, oh, we have a lot of queer characters just living, but they also just happen to get killed. Right. Yeah, and he did he did this quite frequently. I had done an interview with Joe for his site about Cat of Nine Tales, where the main character goes to a gay club and, you know, interacts with drag queens of, of that era and talks to uh, gay patrons and is presented in the movie as just another night out in Italy in 1970, whatever, when that movie came out. You would never see that positive representation in a stateside film. And Argento did that time and again, especially in the giallos, because the giallos were set in modern Rome. And uh, I know that in interviews, he has talked about this and said, the reason I included these things is because gay people live in the world I live in. So why would they also not be in my movies? <laughs> and even though that seems logical for the time, <laughs> it was a radical thing for a heavily Catholic country in a very conservative country, this artwork coming out from one of the top filmmakers just being like, okay, well, this is happening in Four Flies on Grey Velvet and the inspector who's investigating the crime is gay and also might be the only one who actually figures out who the killer is before XYZ. You know, it's like, what? Thank you, sir. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I think there's something laudable and it's odd to me that it's also something that we don't tend to recognize. Like when people talk about Argento, they want to talk about his sexualized violence against women. Right, which I think there is there is merit in that discussion. Yeah. But like in the same time, if we're lauding him as a master of Italian cinema and Italian horror, it is our duty, especially as people who have committed our careers and uh, discussion points to investigating queer horror, it is so fascinating when you have this queer horror narrative, how frequently we talk about like, you know, the Universal monster movies and the James Whale stuff and, mm -hmm. and you know, we'll leap to Nightmare 2 or some of the stuff that was happening stateside yeah, in the Yeah, nothing 80s. happened in the 50 years in between, right? <laughs> right but, but meanwhile, we also have one of the most prominent horror auteurs in the world making movies with positive queer representations within his horror films. Mm -hmm. And it largely goes undiscussed. I mean, like, yes, within horror circles, we talk about it, but on a wider scale, going all the way back to Bird with the Crystal Plumage, he has positive gay characters in that. Four Flies in Grey Velvet. You see an inspector who's queer. Cat and Nine Tails, they go to a gay club. You see drag queens. I mean, it's It's insane. like a pattern of behavior. Like, he is yeah. clearly comfortable with this and making a deliberate effort to include it in his films at arguably like various stages of popularity. It's not like he said, oh, I'm desperate. I'm going to start including scandalous material. Yeah, because Crystal Plumage was his first movie. He had not made a dent in the world yet, but he has a gay character. In that. But I also think to him, even going back to like whether the film is misogynistic or homophobic or not, your mileage may vary. But I also don't get the idea that Argento or the film is homophobic because... It's interesting because, honestly, the first killer, Birdie, he does kill exclusively women. And it's always, you know, because they're perverse or they're wrong in some way. But when Peter Neal becomes the killer, I think he only kills... Well, he kills Jane and Altieri, but he also kills a bunch of men, too. 
But I, I think with the first killer, you could even argue that it's like kind of like a sexist thing, where it's like this super religious man who also just views women as lesser. But I never get for a, a second that like the film views women as lesser. Well, and I think that taking that narrative and applying it to Peter Neal in the second half of the film, Peter Neal's killing is an act of revenge essentially Mm -hmm. and sexual revenge and romantic revenge so those two combined together are almost a commentary on toxic masculinity and or overwhelming ownership that men place over others i mean like peter neal's entire motive is he cannot stand that his former lover is happy with somebody else and he has now the avenue to get his revenge because Mm -hmm. if i can't have her no one will and that's like truly an expose on toxic men. Yeah. Yeah. He's Absolutely. an original incel, guys. He thinks that he should be getting laid by women when he wants, and if he can't have it, then he's going to knock them off. Well, and we'll talk about the metatextual aspects of the film because there are quite a few, but, I mean, and again, this is all hearsay, and I don't know if we want to talk about it now, but, I mean, there there is rumors, there are rumors that Argento became angry when Daria Nicolodi and the lead actor, Anthony Franciosa, they bonded on set and he just was not crazy about that apparently to the point where he reportedly told franciosa leave my woman alone and so (laughs) watching like when you see peter neal's like second half of the film is like oh like i'm getting revenge on this woman who betrayed me it kind of takes on a different uh different flavor yeah sure (laughs) this does feel like a slightly autobiographical text as well like Argento is working through some of the criticisms that his previous films have received even so he's Mm -hmm. not just trying to subvert the expectations he's also talking back to the audience and saying this is what you think of me so I'm going to address it head on in my narrative what I think is kind of interesting and obviously I have no insight into the private lives of these two people no you don't know them personally Michael we thought you were so well connected I have met Dario in passing twice, and all I can say is that he always seems to have very nice cardigans. <laughs> There's the gay in you, Michael. <laughs> like, I met this master of horror, and he had a fantastic cardigan. Though I will say, watching the movie during the scene where Peter Neal and the boy twink detective... Gianni. Oh, he's so cute. Yeah, when they go to the house and are sneaking around, they're both wearing very smart sweaters. And I was like, I see you, Dario, and your mm-hmm. appreciation of a fine cable knit. Oh, yes. But no, I, I, I do think that from kind of a William Castle showman sort of way, it is kind of interesting to also leak the story that this movie about a man who wants revenge on, on his mm-hmm. wife, but this was also kind of going on on set. Like, maybe it's true or maybe when, you know, the myth is better than the facts, they chose to print the myth because it kind of runs parallel to the film. I don't know. I'm That's my conspiracy. But nevertheless, though, I mean, the, the film was already written before this would have happened. So it, if it is true, it's more like a, I mean, I'm not going to say a happy accident. It's just, it, it's a coincidence. It's a <laughs> right. happenstance. A happenstance. There you go. I do love the idea that Argento is like basically calling the paparazzi and being like, hey, I've got a scoop for you. Help make my movie a big success. You know, actually, that may be true. (laughs) Again, this is all total like hearsay and like we're just positing ideas here. (laughs) But yeah, like if he's like, well, Inferno flops, so I got to make sure this one's a hit. (laughs) Exactly. How can I make this scandalous? (laughs) But yeah, again, reception. I mean, at the time, like again, in the States, it was not liked because it was hacked a bit. I think for the most part, reviews at the time were fairly positive, better received than Inferno. 
Right now, we're looking at a Rotten Tomatoes score of 75% with an average score of 6.64 out of 10 and a Letterboxd score of 7.6 out of 10. This is a very highly regarded film, and yes, as Michael, you said, probably one of his most well-liked films. Yeah, I think probably Deep Red and this in terms of the Gialli and then Suspiria for the more supernatural elements. Yeah, I called Suspiria Giallo for a long time, and I got corrected real harsh ones. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I mean it shares it shares giallo color patterns for sure, but yeah. it it is interesting because his career sort of can be divided into the supernatural and then the gialli, but he he is himself. So of course there are elements of both mm-hmm. because he certainly has made a few gialli that feel like they're veering into something kind of like Mm-hmm. abstract fever dream supernatural well i think the one he does after this is phenomena maybe there's something in between but i think that's what, what's next and that's supernatural but then he goes does opera so yes it's almost like he just alternates back and forth which, which one do i feel like making now more power to him man well actually phenomena is sort of a gialli that happens to have a supernatural element because at the core of phenomena is a murder mystery right, right. with the same sort of like tracking shots of like the eye through the eyes of the killer mm-hmm and in addition to that, and the police and the you know the inspector trying to solve that crime, there's a girl who has the magic power to talk to bugs. Which, again, sounds so ridiculous. <laughs> oh, no, it's true. Um, I remember your recent guest, Peaches Christ, and I were talking about Argento once, and I asked her about this movie. I was like, you, you've seen Phenomena, right? And she was like, which one's that? I was like, okay, it's the one where Jennifer Connelly, her dad's a rock star, and she gets sent to a private school in sweden because he's on tour or away or something and she has the magic power to talk to bugs but meanwhile someone is killing girls and donald pleasance and his like assistant monkey are on the case oh my god and peaches was like so you're making all of this up right (laughs) because it sounds bananas when you try and explain the plot to somebody I love the idea that half of the films that we absolutely love and worship were maybe just created as the result of Mad Libs games. Or an right? intense drug bender. Well, well more likely that, yes. <laughs> if I'd like honest. to imagine a lot of a lot of films were uh, written while on shrooms or some other type of hallucinogen. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Wouldn't be surprising, <laughs> right? Um, no, not at all. But all right. Okay. Kick us off, Joe. What's this about? All right. After an opening voiceover in which pages from the book Tenebrae are burned, we open on novelist Peter Neal, Anthony Franciosa, briefly losing his bag in the Kennedy airport as his ex, Jane, Veronica Lario, stares on. And of course, at this point, she's already swapped it out for reasons unknown. She is cuckoo bananas. She's gorgeous, though. Yeah, she is. She really is. (laughs) I think one of the things that I love, and Trace, I'm surprised to hear that you actually enjoy this film as much as you do, because so much of this feels like film noir with these femme fatales with their gorgeous hair and sunglasses. You are correct. And again, my issues with film noir are more the narrative contrivances of it. The one aspect of film noir that I love is the film fatales. Right. Because you love a bitch. I love a bitch. Yep, exactly. (laughs) Well, Jane certainly takes that mantle well. I won't lie, though. I really wish that there was more Jane in here. Like, there's a couple too many characters that I wish had maybe just been left to the side so that we could spend more time with the main people. I think if Peter Neal was the killer from the get-go, I think that would allow for more Jane. But because it's not... I mean, again, the reveal with her and John Saxon's character, Bulmer, I mean, what? That's like 20 minutes before the end of the movie? And it's so weird, too, because you just realize, oh... 
am I invested in the relationship? Do I care? Well, you shouldn't because he gets killed in the next exactly. scene. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, it's just Argento fucking with us, right? It is. But that's kind of, yeah, I mean, that's kind of how I view this film. And like Michael said, he's got a sense of humor. He's just he like, sure fuck does. all y'all. <laughs> yeah. So speaking of a sense of humor, let's jump all the way to Rome and we'll catch up with a young woman who is trying to shoplift a copy of Tenebrae. And she's actually also being stalked by our point of view killer. But I don't know. I... I alternate between feeling grossed out by the way this scene plays where she gets caught and she ends up having to kind of sexually offer herself to the security guard. But then I also think that it's a bit of high camp. It's definitely high camp. For anybody who's ever worked retail, first off, you know that (laughs) mall security and store detectives really don't have the power to do anything. Right. But also this scene like really makes you believe that in Italy of the 70s, not only are store detectives like ominous characters, but they literally have like a whole office set up mm-hmm. where he keeps a book of information. Like this guy is the Sherlock Holmes of the department store. <laughs> yes. And it's just so, it's so preposterous that this would even exist that you have to kind of chuckle. She calls it out though. She's like all this over a paperback. And I'm like, right, bitch, right? <laughs> I do love the fact that he grabs her before she can even get to the checkout. So really, she has a case to say, you have no idea if I was going to pay for this, you fucker. Yeah, right. (laughs) And then that like sort of severe cashier who just like looks on judgingly. Every time I watch this movie, I just stare at that like secondary character who has no lines. No. But she's like very satisfied. Like this book was in the purse. Yeah. Mm. We have an entire window of these books by this famous author and this bitch thought she could come (laughs) here and shoplift from us. But while I agree though that it is kind of campy, I also think it's, I mean, it's a woman using her sexuality to her advantage. I mean, like, Granted, it involves, like you said, offering her body to this creepy old man who accepts really quickly. Mm -hmm. But I think it also kind of shows her feminine wiles. Uh, I mean, if nothing else, this entire scene exists as that deliberate subversion by Argento to say, you probably think that this girl is going to be a protagonist or that she's going to Mm -hmm. be important in the larger frame of the story. But it's also subtly cueing us to say, okay, so you need to keep an eye out for what type of women find themselves in danger. Right. Quote unquote, what type of women. So she ends up getting out of this gym and she is on her way home when she is sexually assaulted by a rough looking man behind a fence. <laughs> and she manages to get away after handling herself quite well, kicks the guy in the balls. She slams his hand in the gate. We've got a really good, like, the keys, the keys, where are the keys moment. Oh, yes. This is a Halloween H20 from 1982. Or yes. or Halloween. Because <laughs> that same thing <laughs> happens in that movie. Uh, I'm a man who doesn't just focus on the classics. Oh, okay. <laughs> are you saying H20 isn't a classic of American cinema? Uh, let's move on, shall we? <laughs> So you think that she's gotten herself out of now two jams, but surprise, there's actually a killer waiting for her in her... I'm just going to go on record here. A lot of the houses in this here film are gorgeous. I bet you love Birdie's house, right? I do love Birdie's house. (laughs) So this is kind of another moment of excess, not just in the way she's killed, but the number of times we have to see this black gloved hand like tear a page out of this book and shove it in her mouth. I feel like it happens 20 times. 
Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, excessive murder scenes are part of the Argento oeuvre. Mm-hmm. Like, if she had just this gotten stabbed, it would have not been him. Yeah, it's not big <laughs> enough. It's not grandiose enough, right? Instead, we've got to get the sexualized violence where she's basically being forced to fillet pages from Peter Neal's novel. I do think it's... Because when I first saw this film, what I thought was happening was it was, like, theming the deaths after their sins because she was trying to steal this book, so he makes her eat this book. And it's Mm. not really something that happens again. No. Although maybe we'll... Maybe. Maybe we'll discover. Yeah, but but, but that's kind of what I... I love a theme, a little gimmick with my serial killers. And so, at first, I think this is a great way to open your film in terms of a kill. It's definitely good right off the top, right? So she is just dead she gets her throat slit we get a couple of pictures taken of her and then we hop back to peter neal who is now firmly in rome he's being welcomed at a cocktail party that's organized by his agent bulmer who's played by john saxon i love this role for john saxon by the way because so frequently especially when he does italian movies john saxon is sort of the inspector or the tough as nails like Mm -hmm. authority figure we rarely get to see him have fun Mm -hmm. and In this movie, he gets to play a character who, by and large, is just having a great time. Like, you know, his client is making him a lot of money. He's drinking. He's got a new hat. (laughs) Having, like, the best time. And it's just like, he is so charming that it's so nice to just see him be charming. And I don't know why this scene is really here. I mean, this scene. just Because the scene with the hat. They have a conversation about the hat. He, then he's like, oh, like, isn't it just going to blow away? And he puts the hat on and he, like, throws his head around and be like, no, look, the hat won't fly away. There's very much, like, a instance in my brain where I'm like, why wasn't this cut out of this film? And it has a very, like, why the fuck not air to it that I kind <laughs> of admire from Argento. I mean, this film is filled with those kinds of moments, right? It could have been tightened up. It doesn't need to be as long as it is. But Mm. a lot of the time, it just kind of feels like Argento saying, I'm going to keep this in here because I fucking feel like it. Yeah, exactly. I will say, however, I love your point, Michael, but I 100% kept mistaking John Saxon as a police officer in this film. Like every time he shows up, I'm like, he's going to solve this case. (laughs) Well, and I think it's because it's like the Pavlovian response, right? Like for so long... Mm -hmm. He is in these movies as a police officer. And then when he comes to America to start making movies, they kept, you know, Mm -hmm. he has been a police officer in Canada, a police officer in America. He's been an inspector in Italy. Let's let the man have a hat and a book. (laughs) And a good good author client. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. He's clearly having a lot of fun with this role, for sure. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, so at this cocktail party, Peter is verbally attacked by Tilda, who is played by Marilla D'Angelo. I do like this, though, because it's established that they already know each other. They are friends. But she's also, she writes for a publication that is, I guess, very feminist. And so she antagonizes him right off the bat. But even, like, once they're done, they're just kind of like, all right, how's life? Yeah, it's very much on the hot seat. And then the minute that that moment has passed, it's back to small talk. Mm Mm-hmm. I actually really like this character a lot. I wish we got more time with her, but I do yep. like that we kind of get that scene later, like when she's just in the bar. Well, I guess where it establishes her, her lesbianism. Mm-hmm. At this point, we just know that she's a book critic and that she has qualms about the fact that his books are sexist. Mm-hmm. You know, she deliberately goes at him and he's like, why are you attacking me right now? Oh, I thought we were friends. And she's like, I'm doing my job. And you need to take me seriously. Just because I'm a woman and you find me attractive doesn't mean I'm going to back down. He respects her. And then they go back to small talk. 
And I'm sure we'll talk about this as this goes on, but I do appreciate that it does also set up a theme that anytime someone's interviewing Peter Neal, it's always sort of about how they don't like his books. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which leads us to like maybe believe that he's not that great of a writer. But but they sell oh, like hotcakes off the presses. Like they are just like they can't keep those things in stock. Okay, let's cast Peter Neal's books in contemporary terms. Who is the Peter Neal of our times? Uh, E.L. James. Yeah, I was, uh, dude, oh, dude, 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 you beat me fucking to it. That's exactly what I was going to say. And listeners, if you don't know, that is the author of the Fifty Shades books. Yeah. I'm assuming in this world that a new Peter Neal novel comes out every couple of months, and they're probably completely derivative, and they're written very schlockily. <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah, so Peter doesn't take very kindly to this, and we also get a brief introduction to Bertie, but we'll come back to him later on. So, he leaves the party, he is reunited with Anne, who is his secretary, played by Daria Nicolodi, Mm -hmm. and they have worked together for six years. So again, they are old friends, they have camaraderie. He also meets junior publicist Gianni, who is played by Christian Borromeo. He's, He's cute. I mean, he's a twink, so of course you think so. I know. (laughs) I'm getting all flustered. The hair. Oof, (laughs) the hair. It's uh, firmly early 80s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, of course it is. What other time would it be? But it's... It's the near future, Joe. Can't you tell by the lighting? (laughs) This is the hair from the near future. (laughs) So the three of them head back to Peter's Hotel, where they are introduced to Captain Germani played by Giuliano Gemma, as well as Detective Altieri, Carola Stagnaro. I'd like applause for all of the relative mispronunciations I'm getting here. Good for you. Never say them again. Thank you. Yeah. So the captain and the detective are there to discuss the shoplifting girl's murder, because, of course, they have immediately tracked it to Peter Neal because of the Tenebrae book and also the fact that they found photos of her death scene at Peter's door. From a purely narrative standpoint, though, I do like that they establish right off the bat that he could not have possibly killed this girl. Mm -hmm. And it makes the reveal later, I think, even better. But I do also think that it is kind of like the most shoddy detective work in some way. I mean, like, they did find the photos. So, you know, it, it, it of course, kicks the narrative of the movie into gear, which Mm -hmm. we need to get, you know, the plot going. Right. But it's sort of like if somebody killed somebody, and then, like, dropped a copy of Dean Koontz's Phantoms on their body. (laughs) You know, then the police show up at Dean Koontz's house and be like, what do you know about this? It's kind of insane. It's sort of insane. Well, he he makes that comparison where he's like, if if someone kills someone with a Smith & Wesson, do you go to the owner of Smith & Wesson? And it's like, that's Mm -hmm. not really the same thing, but I see what you're trying to do. quite the same. Yeah. Right. Although I am now imagining that in the world of like high tension, when the murders are happening and the police go to Dean Koontz's house and they're like, so you wrote this book, Insanity, which is very similar to what's happening in high tension. And we'd like to talk to you about these murders. Okay. Dean Koontz is like, I would like to talk to my copyright. Yeah. <laughs> I have issues and I could make money off of this. That's a deep cut from High Tension, which is an episode we have not done. No, we have not done it. Yeah, not really interested in doing that in the immediate future. 
Anyway, so conveniently enough, this is when Peter gets a phone call from the killer and they deduce that the person is calling from the payphone down below. So the police run down there, but of course there's nobody there. I don't find this movie scary, but I do think that the phone calls are really creepy because the killer's voice is just... Ooh, it scares the crap out of me, to be honest. I think it's a Which very... is the standard Giallo voice, because he uses that kind of, like, that whisper talk that's mm-hmm. happening mm-hmm. in every Giallo movie to avoid giving away who the killer is, but it's always effective. Like, that's a trademark, but I love it. I, I'm here for it. Yeah, it's basically, are you listening to ASMR or are you listening to a Giallo phone call? <laughs> if I'm lucky, both. <laughs> oh my god, I'm about to be murdered. I'm so sleepy. What I actually do think, though, is I think that the voice has an effeminate quality to it. Because mm-hmm, I was actually mm-hmm. wondering a lot of this time, and obviously it's it's not established in the film, but I was actually wondering for a lot of the time if Birdie was gay. Oh, I 100% do subscribe to that theory. I mean, it's not John Steiner, the actor who plays Cristiano Birdie. Mm-hmm. It's not his voice, obviously. It's a dub. But the dubbed voice is quite effeminate. Mm-hmm. Yes. But obviously, if we take that reading of it, then it makes the film kind of more offensive and anti-queer. Uh, I mean, I don't subscribe to the idea that just because you have a queer killer means that it's homophobic or anti-queer. No, I agree with you. But I think because his method of murder is killing people who are perverse and right. anti-religion. And mm. it's something about like a self-hatred he would feel about himself if he was gay. So he's trying to kill the other perverts to like cleanse him his own perversity but what's interesting about that you know if you want to take that track is when he and peter neal are having their interview you know how i alluded to every time peter neal is interviewed people don't like the book when Mm -hmm. cristiano is talking about his thing he's like well it seems like you're condemning perversity and he, he mentions a gay character yeah Peter Neal is very quick to say that he doesn't find anything about being gay perverse. Mm -hmm. And like, even though Peter Neal is also sort of like the second killer. So, you know, we have to take everything he says with a grain of salt. I think in this moment, that is an earnest statement, both on behalf of the character and the filmmaker, that it's sort of like how you perceive perversity because of your societal conditioning and the actual facts are two different things. So it's sort of like we see positive queer representation through this film. If you want to read Cristiano Berti as a gay character, he maybe is struggling with his whole situation in a very dark way. But it's sort of that moment is very definitively being like, okay, that's your damage though, because Mm -hmm. in actuality, this is not a bad thing and there's nothing perverse about it. And I would actually disagree with you that we have to take what he says with a grain of salt at this point in the film because he hasn't snapped yet. I mean, obviously he snapped when he kills the woman on the beach like as a kid or whatever. But at this point, he's still like, because the film insinuates that when he murders, it's like a almost like a fugue state. And it hasn't happened yet. So I would say at this point, he's still very much like aware. Yeah. Yeah. Peter's not a great guy. Like I find him a predator when it comes to his interactions with women, but he's certainly not that guy who's like condemning perversity. I kind of get the impression he's like, oh, well, I write about this because it sells books, not because I believe it. Right. Right. Yeah. So at this point, I'm going to move on and talk about the dream flashback. But before I do, I just want to highlight my absolute favorite line of dialogue in this movie. So after the two police officers have run down, 
Germani says, I should have had a male partner. He'd run faster. And Altieri goes, you'd hate it. You'd have nothing to bitch about. <laughs> I didn't even catch that. <laughs> so good. I love that. She just reads him to film. Actually, I think I caught it because I wrote in my notes during the scene. I was like, wow, the woman detective hasn't said a single word. And I think that's her first line of dialogue in the film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, she's not a fully developed character. Like you probably could have just had one police officer doing all of well, the work. Then you'd lose a body in the in the last act. True. And also that subversion because mm-hmm. you're meant to think it's Anne. Okay, so let's introduce the Freudian component of the film. We don't really know what's happening, but eventually, because of the way it's shot, because of the kind of haziness and also the unnerving distorted carousel score Mm -hmm. that accompanies it, we are in a dream slash flashback, and we see a woman in red heels and a white dress, and this is trans actress Eva Robbins, and she is surrounded by men on the beach. And this is heavily sexually coded. Like, we could be watching softcore pornography at the beginning of the tape. Okay, because I just looked this up because I had to check. But have y'all ever seen the musical or the movie Nine? Yes, I've seen it both on stage. So Nine, the Broadway play, comes out in 1982. Okay. I'm sorry. The Broadway production opened in 1982, but it was actually created in 1973. This scene gave me major Nine vibes. I guess maybe eight and a half even, with a seductress on the beach with a bunch of boys, with a bunch of children. Yeah, like the ultimate object of desire and that like sort of burgeoning male identity Mm -hmm. and how one person is just not on board with it. Well, he's on board with it, but is overly aggressive. Well, he he fucking beats her. Well, I know. I mean, he does. And But the thing is, is like she is is beloved by all these men. And then he what I appreciate about how this scene plays out is he approaches and it automatically it's like the other boys because there's a moment where you think, are the other guys going to participate in this? Right. Uh-huh. This sort of aggression that he has. And they're like, no, sir, absolutely not. And it's shown like, you know, his aggression against women is standing apart. You know, she is beloved and held high by these other guys. Well, because they hold him down. They hold him down. Yeah, they're like, not here, not not on our watch. Mm-hmm. And I, I kind of appreciate that it didn't turn into sort of this, like, bacchanal of male aggression. It's interesting that you guys are saying this, because every time I watch this, I get just incredibly queer vibes from this section. Because it's a bunch of shirtless men who literally don't show their heads. It's like disembodied, fetishized bodies. And it looks like we're about to watch an orgy in which the woman Mm -hmm. is almost the leader. Like, she's going to instigate it, but I could easily see her then, like, just kind of stepping back and letting the boys go to town on each other. I can see why anyone would see that. Because I don't know if that was me projecting this, but I thought they were, like, teenagers. I didn't think they were, like, men doing this. Uh, it's hard to tell. And we don't know. Yeah, we we get no kind of clarity. And I think that's by design. Like, this is meant to be questionable to me. Mm-hmm. If we look at this as a dream or a flashback or a subconscious memory that's making its way to the surface, it doesn't feel entirely trustworthy, which I think is why everything is so heightened, right? Like, there's a heightened sexuality to the entire way this plays out. And yes, kudos to Argento for casting a trans actress. Yeah, I mean, does that change the way that we read this scene? Um... And we can obviously acknowledge that all of us are coming at it from... A cisgender gay yes. male perspective. 
Yeah, my my take on this is I really don't want to speak on behalf of the trans community right. in terms of how this scene is read from a trans perspective. It just goes back for me in terms of how Argento employed and included queerness and queer actors and queer performers in his work because it was just a matter of fact of his world. Right. Yeah. You know, she is a trans actress that he puts in, in this amazing like fever dream sequence. And it's just a matter of fact. And that that's it. It's like, you know, she's she is the object of desire and, you know, the center point of this important moment in the film. Mm-hmm. And that's that. And then it moves on. It like he does not make a point to focus on that because that's not what it's about. I right. also think because the first time I saw this, I wasn't aware that this actress was trans. And I think if I had, I would have expected the film to go the route because again knowing that this is the inciting incident for peter neal this is what kind of makes him go crazy and what's like his it makes him bent on revenge yeah i would have expected from a lesser filmmaker and a lesser screenwriter to make it like oh if the character is trans then maybe it's like the man goes home with the woman and realizes that she's a trans female and like kills her because of that i like that at least in the world of the film we don't have to deal with that issue at all Yeah, this woman is just a powerful figure, and Mm -hmm. she basically emasculates whoever this boy is, aka Junior Peter Neal. And of course, the moment that people love to talk about is when she sticks the heel of the stiletto into his mouth. Oh my god, it's such good imagery. Mm -hmm. It's really good. This is kind of why I said, oh, it's like the most accessible pop version of Freudian psychology, because... Everything to do with these dream flashbacks is just so highly suggestible that you don't need any kind of education to understand, like, oh, okay, I see what's going on here. It's also the kind of the thing where it's like, oh, well, how do we emasculate this man? We make him fillet something. There is that, but, I mean, I was more interested in how this ends up getting coded into obsessive desire and how we see the shoes come back as a Mm -hmm. fetish object and that kind of stuff. Right. I don't know. Maybe just because we talk about men being made to fully things a lot. No, and, and he, <laughs> he does keep the shoes as a token, so... This is true. Or as a trophy. Yeah. Okay, so we come back to the present, and this is where it's time to bid adieu to Tilda. It's like we get an introduction to her. She's got this girlfriend slash roommate, Marion, who is played by Marilla Banty, and they have a very weird fight in a bar in which Tilda is obviously in love with Marion. Marion obviously wants to go home with some straight dude and have a sexual engagement, possibly just to make Tilda mad. So that all happens. And then Tilda comes home and she (laughs) isn't having any of it, but we're too busy having this fantastic motherfucking crane shot. (laughs) Oh my God. This is like pure Argento. It's Mm -hmm. it's him just saying, I'm going to do what I want. And it's going to be literally executed to excess. Yeah. And it's amazing. Also, what I love about this scene that frequently goes sort of unremarked is not only is the shot great, but we get this like great score from Goblin. Right. But it's actually diegetic in the Mm -hmm. way that she's listening to She's listening to Goblin. (laughs) On the record. So it's like in Tenebrae, they're listening to the soundtrack of Tenebrae on the record player. So I I wanted to explain that because I've used the word diegetic on this podcast before and I've never taken the time to explain it to anyone who might not know. But listeners, in case you don't know, so diegetic means it's in the world of the film. 
like the opening of this film is the goblin score. Well, I'm sorry. It's technically goblin, but because the drummer didn't take part in this, I guess he had the legal rights to use the name goblin. So they're actually credited as their three individual names as opposed to goblin as a collective. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, so like the opening, you know, with the book being burned and whatever, that is non-diegetic because the score is not like in the film. It's like meant to, you know, be, oh, it's for us, it's for the audience. But diegetic means it's actually in the film. So when you have Marianne playing a record and Tilda's like, turn that music down, she's actually referring to the fucking theme of the movie that is playing on this record player. (laughs) It's pretty genius. It's so good. (laughs) So, yeah, as you said, Michael, this crane shot honestly serves no narrative function but it is glorious as fuck it's for me the defining element of this film which is sad because i really should remember other more important things (laughs) but it's just so audacious it's two and a half minutes long of a fucking tracking shot from one window to another window on the other side of this building yep it's glorious it's Mm -hmm. just absolutely magnificent yeah and it took them days to shoot yeah the longest part of the film (laughs) (laughs) Apparently, he captured all the footage he needed in two takes and insisted on filming ten more. Yeah. As you do. That sounds right. right. (laughs) That sounds very Kubricky, right? Just a bit extra. (laughs) So, in quick succession, Tilda and Marion are both killed and more pictures are taken. Just one comment about this kill scene, though. My favorite shot is when... So, he kills Tilda as she's putting on her shirt. Mm -hmm. And he slashes at the shirt. And there's this shot where it's... You see her face through the hole in the shirt as she watches the blade come down again. And it's a really cool shot. I just really, really like it. Yeah. Yeah, it's one of the most famous images from the film. You see that still used a lot. I think if you're watching it on Shutter, that's actually the still that they use on their site yeah i've got the anchor bay dvd from back in the day and that's the cover of the disc no shit Mm -hmm. oh my god go me i didn't know that (laughs) i swear (laughs) i love how you made that about you i know (laughs) literally not about you old trace i know a good shot thurman there we go (laughs) get that printed on his tombstone oh god Alright, so the next morning, Peter hits on the landlord's daughter, Maria, played by Laura Wendell, and word of the recent murder spread. So every time a murder happens, the police always, like, phone Peter up, and he's just like, oh, oh, I gotta go do another interview. Sorry, bye. Yeah. I'm gonna refer to that as uh, Colin Kuntz. Every time a murder (laughs) happens, they have to call the author. That's a Colin the (laughs) Kuntz. I love it. That's the subtitle for this episode. Nice. Okay. (laughs) So he proceeds to go and do the on-air interview with book reviewer Cristiano Birdie. And this is where we get the exchange about deviancy and perversion. And clearly Peter is like, did you read the book? Because you have completely misinterpreted it. Question. Do y'all say aberrant or aberrant? Aberrant. Aberrant. Okay, that's what I say too. But they were saying aberrant in this. And I was like, have I been saying it wrong my entire life? I had a really like terrifying moment that i was like oh my god i mean i think that that could just have something to do with the dub Uh, we've talked about argento shot all of his movies without sync sound which was very common in italy at the time and and trace you said you don't like the dub but unfortunately Mm -hmm. it's usually the best way to watch these movies because the cast is usually comprised of people from many different countries yeah all speaking their own languages right so i sense that sometimes the the translation of people in the booth or just like, I don't know what's happening. To 
I feel like we definitely get to see that when Jane is talking to Anne on the phone near the end of the film, where you're just mm-hmm. like, she looks like she's saying about 50% more words than what we're actually hearing on this dub right now. Yeah, I wish I could I could get over the dubbing. I, it's, it's really a hurdle for me, and I have a lot of trouble with it. It is surprising to me that more people aren't bothered by it, considering how many people are bothered by dubbing in foreign films to English, but I digress. I think it's because it's part of the charm of this particular subgenre, because mm-hmm. if I watch international cinema i tend to prefer it with subtitles oh, as, yes. to, as opposed to dub. No, me too but growing up watching argento and like really just embracing these movies and, and and bava before him and fulci as well it's just part of the milieu of sort of italian horror and because they would so frequently pick actors from america to come over it's sort of interesting to see just a sort of like whole international gumbo of mm-hmm having like Telly Savalas with Italian Satanists or, you know, Carl <laughs> Malden investigating a crime and hearing their voices mixed in with, with this international cast of dub actors. It's part of the whole thing. I don't know that I would actually want an Argento film with subtitles because I'm so used to them this way. Yeah, it's part of the appeal, but I think for a younger generation who is just going into this saying, oh, I've been told I need to watch Bava, I need to watch Argento, it is almost jarring. Like, I I like to watch movies with subtitles now just so that I can make sure I'm catching the nuance, because I don't want to just rely on sound. And it was almost disarming to not be able to turn on captions, because my disc is like, nope, sorry, you got to deal with the dub. And it's interesting because, Joe, you and I discussed Demons last year, which was a first-time watch for you, but I fucking love Demons, which also has the dubbing issue, but for some reason it doesn't bother me in that, and I think maybe it's just because it's so much more, I don't know, action-packed? There's definitely less dialogue, but I think that also just speaks to the fact that you're a big weirdo. Yep. Yep. It is jarring, though, when you are familiar enough with these movies and forget that sometimes in the dub, depending where the actor is from... The person doing the voice is different because mm-hmm. earlier in these quarantine, stay at home, lockdown, whatever phrase people like to use times, <laughs> I did sort of give myself a comfort rewatch of most of the Argento films. And one night I watched Trauma and The Stendhal Syndrome back to back. Both of these movies star Asia Argento, mm-hmm. but in Trauma, oh, no. she uses her own voice and in Stendhal Syndrome, she's overdubbed. It was sort of just like weird watching them back to back because you're like, oh, this woman sounds totally different than what I have just (laughs) created in my brain. (laughs) She is giving a crazy vocal performance in this. Oh, that's a different actress. Never mind. Never mind. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Okay. So back at the hotel, Peter believes that he has spotted his ex Jane, even though she has no reason to be in Rome. And we're told that she doesn't like to leave New York. And that night, Maria winds up in the wrong place at the wrong time. And if you want to say that this movie has a sense of humor, it has to oh, it's be this. this scene. So she is attacked by an angry Doberman who chases her into the killer's lair. A flying Doberman. This Doberman <laughs> is the most acrobatic Doberman I have ever seen in my life. Like, there's a shot where it literally, like, climbs the fence. Mm-hmm. And I was like, holy shit, that's, aw- that's awesome. <laughs> it might be a robot. Yeah. Man's Best Friend, starring Ali Sheedy. Yes, yes. That dog's first role. I do love, though, that, like, she gets away, and then she, like, walks around the corner, and then you just see the dog, like, fucking coming for her from around the corner. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, with no explanation. No. No, no, none at all. It's just out to get her. And 
I'm actually surprised that this scene is not mentioned among the pantheon of great horror chase scenes, if only because it may not be particularly, I don't know, exciting, I guess, but like it is a long chase scene because you have the dog and the killer chase. Yeah, it does go yeah. on for quite a bit longer than you might remember. Like, I remember, oh yeah, this is the thing with the dog and it jumps over the fence, but there's like eight different parts to this chase. <laughs> Yeah. This is the Helen Shivers of Italian geology. Well, okay, it chases her to the killer's house, coincidentally. She finds his lair, finds all the photos that he's conveniently laid out for her. <laughs> I think my favorite part is when he's chasing her in the grass, and she, you know, there's that trope about when your final, or when your girl's being chased and, like, they throw things at the killer. Mm-hmm. She throws the photos at him as if that's going to have any kind of stopping power. Yeah, I know. And then there's a part of you, if you've never seen this movie before, you're like, why are you throwing all of the circumstantial evidence? <laughs> mm-hmm. You you need to keep at least some of that if you get away. She also like falls and literally does like a somersault at one point. She's acrobatic. And then, yeah, she falls off that fucking fence. Yeah. Poor, poor innocent Maria. She didn't deserve this. <laughs> you forgot her name already. <laughs> I 100% forgot her name because she's not a character in this movie. She exists to be flirted with and then die. I would say that she's the flirter. Uh, right. That's the thing. A lot of the women in this film are actually very sexually, I'm not going to use the word aggressive, but they're sexually forward. It's Good ladies of the 70s, well, late 70s, slash 80, early 80s. This is 1982. Eh, but you get the impression that this is still very much a 70s informed right. film. Mm-hmm. So we've got another murder on the books, which means that at this point, Captain Germani literally orders peter to stay in his room like you're not allowed to go out anymore because you just keep prompting (laughs) murders so peter decides that he's going to play detective because he is a famous novelist of murder mysteries so he and Anne and gianni decide that they're gonna figure out who is doing this and they decide that it is book critic birdie so over Anne's protests peter and gianni decide to stake out birdie's house And Johnny promptly sees the book critic struck in the head with an axe and die. And then he goes back and he finds that Peter has been knocked out with a rock. Do y'all remember what y'all thought the first time y'all saw this movie? Like, in this scene? Were y'all like, oh, that's quick. Or, oh, they got the wrong guy. Or, oh, it's clearly Peter because he's been conveniently knocked out. I 100% thought that they had the wrong guy. Mm. Yeah. I think that, like, the first time I saw it, it was what Joe said. I was just like, oh, there's going to be a misdirect. And it's going to be john saxon or jane jane or it could have been am like i mean mm-hmm. the, the thing about argento is like he is sort of an equal opportunity offender of who is revealed to be the killer in a lot of his movies mm-hmm. so i think by the time i saw tenebrae i was like well everybody's a suspect yeah. because sometimes the actual reveal about why people are killing people in argento movies is sort of like ancillary well so, again, I know I said earlier I don't like Deep Red that much, and I honestly don't even remember who the killer is, but, like, I remember feeling that one was kind of ancillary, but maybe I'm misremembering. I think Deep Red is just a deeply confusing film. Like, it really just goes all over the place, so by the time mm-hmm. you get the killer reveal, you're like, oh, right, I'm watching a murder mystery. I watched the longer cut of that one, too, because there's, like, a European version that's, like, almost two hours long, and that's the one that I watched. Yeah, that's a hard introduction to that film. Yeah. But yeah, no, I'm, I think, yeah, because they present Birdie as so obviously the killer, but I kind of like that he actually is a killer. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, and this was the scene, by the way, where Peter Neal and Gianni were wearing very smart sweaters that I referenced earlier. Oh, yes. yeah. Yay. They managed to not get them too dirty or bloody, so that's always nice. <laughs> right. 
Well, I assume that they had to be returned to the wardrobe cart. <laughs> We've only got one copy of these. Please try not to dirty them. So Anne and Peter end up spending the night together, and we're told that this is something that has never happened before because, of course, he was with Jane. Okay. And then we get another flashback memory, and this is the part where we see the woman from the beach is now stabbed. So we know that whoever was wronged by her in the past ultimately ended up killing her. Mm-hmm. Right. And then we're back to the present. Peter meets with Bulmer, who is the John Saxon character, whom we've not talked about recently because he kind of <laughs> disappears for large portions of the movie. We've talked about his sensible hat and how he's having fun. Yeah. And not playing a cop. And that's what's important. Mm -hmm. God bless you, John right, Saxon. Right, like, when in Rome. Oh, <laughs> Michael. Oh, no. Michael, we're going to have to ask you to leave the podcast now. <laughs> I thought that was really clever. Thank you. So speaking of when in Rome, Peter announces he's leaving Rome. He's done with this. He will not be sequestered to his hotel site anymore. He's going to leave. And Bulmer's like, all right, fine. You've already made me the money, so that's okay. And then as soon as Peter leaves, this is when Jane comes out. And she and Bulmer just start making out so messily. It's gross. It is a very graphic makeup. <laughs> and it, it definitely has this very, like, Dynasty Dallas kind of dialogue. I, yes. yes, 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 yes. So soapy. And I do love that her line is, I feel so sleazy. <laughs> I'm like, you should, Jane. Or is she a filthy, slimy pervert, as Birdie would say? Well, there is that as well, yeah. Do you think that we're supposed to now not like Bulmer? I think it's maybe just supposed to be another red herring. So, oh, could the pair of them be in this together oh. to either frame Peter or to maybe knock Peter off? Gotcha. That's my read. It's highly possible. <laughs> I mean, again, we don't get a lot of insight into these characters and their motivations. We just kind of move them around the board until it's their time to be knocked off. Yeah. Right. Which, for Bulmer, is right now. So Jane gets a pair of red stilettos in a box, and then Bulmer gets stabbed to death in a public square. I do like that Neil has an affinity for public murders with knives that don't get him caught ever, that no, no one seems to see. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, he's uh, very brave and very public when it comes to murders. Except for yeah. maybe Gianni's. Into public. Does... <laughs> Oh, what are you into? Oh, you know, public murder. Does, does Bulmer go you whenever he turns around, or is it just a moment, like a, a, a look in his eyes? I think he just gets killed. Okay, well, because there's a moment of realization, but I was like, there's always that kind of tropey thing where it's like, you, and then they get killed. Yeah, I got that more from Gianni's death. Oh, yeah, yeah. Poor sad Gianni. Poor Gianni. He was really the smartest one of the group, but he just wasn't smart enough. Well, I feel like the yeah. problem with Gianni is that he mentions it to Peter. He's like, oh, I've got some suspicions. I don't think that Bertie's death is like shaking up, which is why he then goes to the murder scene. And then he has, you know, his own flashback memory where he hears Bertie say, ah, I killed them. I was, I'm the killer. And then, of course, Gianni's like, aha, I figured things out. There's a second killer. And then he just gets garroted. Well, I mean, that's the thing. Like, Gianni, like, fucking saw Birdie get killed, but didn't see who killed him. So he's a fucking idiot. And then you have the detective who's like, oh, I read these fucking mystery novels all the time, but he can't figure out who the killer is because he's a fucking idiot. There is that, although I would argue that Gianni not remembering and then remembering at a key moment is a very classic Argento trope. Yeah. And Michael, what film am I thinking of? Is it Crystal Plumage that that happens? 
Yeah, well, because Crystal Plumage is all centered around the fact that the guy sees the killing through the glass. Mm -hmm. And for most of the movie, he's like, I don't remember exactly. And then in that one moment, he's like, ah, gasp. The memory is here. (laughs) It's always just kind of like, what instigated this? I don't know. It just came back to me. I had repressed it for a while. And now it's here. And now I'm in danger. That's really frustrating to me. I, I'm going to go back and watch some of these movies because, I, I mean, I haven't seen Crystal Plum. I actually haven't seen a lot of Regina, to be honest, because I'm just like, I've been putting it off. But <laughs> I, I just, like, again, like, y'all describing that, like, that doesn't sound good to me. And so I need to just experience it and try to, like, appreciate it for what it is. Oh, I find it plays very, very well in Crystal Plumage. But that's also one of the first Argentos that I ever saw. So yeah. I think it has that novelty factor for me. All right. Well, I think Bird with the Crystal Plumage also is more of a crime film. Yeah. I mean, they're all crime films, but he has not quite leaned into the surrealism of Giallo yet. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, it's there. You can see it kind of like peeking its head out, but it doesn't get like the bananas stuff that happens later. Yeah, very Mm -hmm. much so. For sure. So basically, we're headed towards the end because we've killed off most of the cast at this point. With Bulmer dead, we've got Jane. She's terrified. She calls Anne on a rainy night and alternates between, oh, I think I'm in danger and someone's going to kill me and I might just kill myself. Oh, you did forget to say that um, Jane is sent the red shoes from the woman on the beach. I did say it. You just Damn it. weren't listening. Okay, never mind. Gasp. Gasp. Gay gasp. <laughs> <laughs> so Jane... She's actually trying to get a hold of Peter, but she gets Anne because, of course, Peter's out killing people. So the secretary comes over to her apartment, but it's too late. Jane's arm is severed through the window by an axe. I love this kill. I love this kill. Good scene. I'll confess, I often forget about this entire murder. It's one of the most popular murders, I think, in Giallo history because that imagery of her just like flopping across the wall. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. It's really good. (laughs) Well, and that's where, because again, so much of the interiors of this film are painted white, that it really pays off as she just sprays blood all over the white wall. Yeah. There's something very satisfying as a horror fan when you just like, oh, that blank canvas, and now we're going to paint it red. (laughs) Exactly. So she is then axed to death in the kitchen. And it's weird to me. I know that her arm getting chopped off is graphic but this just doesn't seem to me the most sensational death in this film. So I'm surprised that this is where the four seconds or the one second tended to be right. cut from. What would you argue is the most sensational death in the film? Um, hmm. No, that's kind of the thing for me, too. Is I mean, it's not a thing, period. I mean, it's a violent film, but it's um, I think it's a film whose reputation might make you think it's gorier than it is. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong in that aspect. Well, I also, I don't know, like, how much you guys know about how the MPAA, especially at this time, kind of gauged ratings. And obviously, of course, the Video Nasties had sort of their own Mm -hmm. system. It's changed a bit recently, but it is sort of like this odd, arbitrary sense of judgment where they literally would gauge scenes and movies by actual amount of like liters slash gallons of blood visible on screen and if it like exceeded a certain point then it gets an r or an nc7 like yeah. arbitrary craziness so when you have a scene where someone's like spraying the wall like you know they're using a hose of blood is almost kind of surreal and comical as it, it is 
I can see someone sitting there being like, Mm-mm, we have exceeded five gallons and now we have to like blah, 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 you know. But that's the thing, too, is like because uh, the MPAA can be swayed with tone as they were with something like Scream where Craven had to step in and be like, look, y'all this is kind of comedic. And they're like, oh, we see what you're doing. <laughs> so I feel like if someone would have stepped in and been like, hey, y'all, this is ridiculous. It's kind of funny that this woman's spraying blood everywhere. <laughs> Maybe right. they could have changed their mind, but right. not the case. Argento just needed somebody to actively protest more on his behalf. No, it's it's silly. Come on, folks. Well, because by the time this comes out in the States, it's 84, and that's the year the PG-13 rating came into existence. <laughs> yeah, Tenebrae, the classic... PG-13. PG-13. <laughs> oh my god, just imagine we could throw it in everybody's faces. Oh, PG-13, it's not gory, it's not scary. Take a break. <laughs> Eat it. Sorry, I apologize for that. And sorry, Trace, to come back to your question, I actually think that Gianni's death is the hardest to watch in this film, but maybe it's just because I also don't think that he deserved to go out that way. With a garrot? Yeah, it's just, it's prolonged, and he looks like he's really suffering, which is usually an MPAA thing, right? Like, if people yeah. look visibly distressed for long periods of time, mm. well, that's gotta go. Hmm. Okay. Anyway, so, back to Jane. Jane's dead, in the kitchen, and we need one final flashback. And that is basically a recreation of the murder of the woman, only this time we get to see that the killer takes a moment to pull off her red shoes and take them away. So, yes, Freud. Do Making this will. whole movie, in a way, a red shoe diary. Oh, Michael, no. Trace doesn't reference. get that because he's too young. As I don't, I don't understand what that means. <laughs> Never mind. Everyone of a certain age just did what I did. Michael, You're welcome, bad, everybody. Bad, Michael. <laughs> so at this point, Anne arrives at Jane's apartment, and she is axed. Except that, surprise, it's actually Detective Altieri. I'm sorry, Detective non-character Altieri. Yes, Jane Standin, Detective Altieri. She did. Anne Standin. Yes. Did I just say her name again? You said Jane Standin. Oh, right. Okay. Not Jane. It's okay. I was doing it the entire time (laughs) in my notes. So it is now time for our big shocking reveal. It turns out that Peter is the second killer, everybody. Spoiler alert. We've told it to you about a half dozen times now, but Peter is the killer. You know, we, we haven't commented on it, but I actually think that Franciosa gives a really, really good performance in the climax of this film. I mean, he's kind of blah for the rest of it, but I actually do like, like him huddled in the corner, pouting like a baby. I kind of really enjoyed watching that. Well, I think he got the dual tones because he definitely plays that sort of like brash almost 70s leading man like well we need to blah 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 and then when he snaps he snaps and i think it's really great he sort of knew what he had to do to throw the audience off yeah yeah you can almost see the split right like we get this final piece of the flashback puzzle fitting into place and all of a sudden it becomes clear to us but it also seems to become clear to peter the ruse is up he's a crazy killer now right but his motive revenge revenge um also can we talk about what this performance would have been like if it had been the original casting choice of christopher Christopher walken Walken. (laughs) (laughs) oh my would this film play differently i mean christopher walken wasn't christopher walken at 1981 82 so well yeah i'm trying to think of i've never tried to do a christopher walken voice but the woman with the red shoes well, that's good. You know, the thing the thing about it, though, is I kind of think about it similar to the critique that Stephen King gives Jack Nicholson in The Shining. Of course, an amazing performance and, of course, an amazing actor. 
But King always said the problem is, is he's crazy from the beginning because you're so used to seeing Jack Nicholson be an unhinged character that his mm-hmm. descent into madness really isn't a rock of the needle for the audience. Even at this point, even though Christopher Walken wasn't the way that we think of him now. He looks evil, though. Well, he, he <laughs> did always play kind of intense characters. Like, you know, we, yes. we would have had Deer Hunter by this point. And it's sort of like the idea that he would be revealed as the killer. You'd probably be like, oh, yeah, okay. You yeah, know? it fits. It tracks. I kind of expected that. And or I'm not overly surprised. Right. Whereas Franciosa, he does kind of play like congenial dude up until this point. And you buy it because, sure. Because sure. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Peter is discovered by Anne and Germani, who happen upon the scene. They've got double murder here. And before anything can really happen, Peter dies by suicide. So it's like, cool, the case is closed. And Anne and Germani go back out to his car, where the captain delivers a metric ton of exposition, which is kind of like for the dumb people in the back, where it's like, Peter had this history with this woman in Rhode Island. Which, by the way, all of those flashbacks were not shot in Rhode Island. Anyone who's ever been to Rhode Island, it doesn't look like that. (laughs) When I saw that Rhode Island, I was like, do you mean Malta? Like, that looked like an Italian beach. We're not dumb. (laughs) Although I have to say about this particular moment, and a, a lot of film scholars have commented on the fact that Argento does like to kind of make the inspectors in all of his movies kind of dumb i mean i guess with the exception of the of the gay inspector in four flies in gray velvet it's sort of like he he makes fun of law enforcement and what i think is really funny about this is all throughout the movie germani is like i can never solve uh you know your books before i'm done reading them and then finally he's like i finally figured it out and it's sort of like okay dude but you're a detective so maybe this isn't something to be proud of it's sort of him making fun of the fact that this guy's not a very good detective (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and it's like, you figured it out after how many bodies? Like, dude, it took you forever still. And seems to be not phased that his partner's dead on the ground. He is not, yeah. and he also doesn't check to make sure the throat slash wound is real. Yeah, yeah, like, he's not checking pulses on anybody. He's like, ugh, what a day. Another <laughs> day at the office. <laughs> this is going to be so much paperwork for me. I'm going to go home and read that Dean Koontz novel. Yes. At this point, after he has clarified all of this, this is when he decides I should go back into this house and, you know, contain the scene and do some other things that normally a good police officer would do. And uh, Peter's body is not there anymore. And this is because, of course, Peter has faked his own death and he axes Germani in the back and Germani dies. (laughs) Good riddance, man. I mean, Germani, you sucked, so it's fine. So this is when Anne comes in to investigate, and she inadvertently knocks over a statue that has been propped up against the door. So as he rushes to kill her, the statue falls on him and impales him in the gut, and he just bleeds out in front of her as she screams and screams and screams. So this was apparently something she said, though, where she was like, the stress of making this film she put all of that into this because she was just supposed to scream and be done and like it was going to cut to black and she just kept going 
I love it. It's so unhinged. It is. Yeah. And it's. I think it's a really great and kind of unsettling way to end the film. And yes. I haven't commented much on, all, much on all the themes and analysis in the film because, um, ladies and gentlemen, the Wikipedia section for this film on analysis is long as fuck. There's a lot of different readings of this film that are quite interesting. My favorite one is that the art kills the artist. Oh. I just love that it's like a Rube Goldberg death. <laughs> it's just sort of like... One thing I do think is very unsettling about his death is, you know, when he is pierced by this, the sculpture, he is pulling at it, but the blood is too wet and it's just his hands are sliding on it. Mm-hmm. That's a very gruesome image that I think doesn't get commented on enough in terms of unsettling moments. Like she's going crazy, but he's very desperately trying to save himself and it's not working. And it, it leaves for uh, a very just jarring moment. Yeah, it's a surprising way to end the film. Like, you could argue that there's catharsis here because you get to see the killer put away and our heroine is still safe. But I would argue because Anne is still screaming and we don't even really see him die, he's still struggling with it all the way until the end. And then the movie just ends and you're like, wow, okay, that's how you're going to leave me, is it? That's such a him move, though. I think one thing I've always liked about Argento, especially with Giallos. He knows when to get out. Well, they just don't do wrap-ups. It's just like, and dead on the ground, they're like, that's it, you have been watching Tenebrae, good night. <laughs> There's a couple movies of his where, like, the killer just, like, falls over dead and the credits just start rolling before anyone even moves. And <laughs> I, I have to say that I appreciate that. <laughs> no, I, I do, too. I mean, again, this movie's 101 minutes long. I think it mostly earns its runtime, but I don't need I don't need anything else from this. I think that's a really good way to end the film. Do you want an epilogue with Anne where she's like, I don't know, traumatized or something? Like, it's pretty clear. And then Anne writes a book of her own. I was going to say, I want her to write a book about her experiences. My life as a secretary for this psychopath. Well, so and Tenebrae, all I got were the red shoes. Tenebrae in Italian is like the darkness. So what if she wrote whatever the Italian word for the lightness was? Oh. Oh. There you go. There you go. The unbearable lightness of being. Of Anne. Yes. I hate you both. That was a garbage joke for both of you to end on. I don't like it. Well, you know what? Listeners, let us know. If you laughed, taunt Joe. (laughs) Yes, come to me directly. (laughs) I would like you to grade both Trace's and Michael's jokes on a scale of A to F. Of funny or not funny, or Joe's a stick in the mud. So, that (laughs) is Tenebrae. Boys, what lasting thoughts of Tenebrae? What do y'all think? Michael, take it home. Oh, I mean, to me, it's an undisputed classic of Dario Argento's filmography, as well as the giallo genre in general. I think that it's stark. Well, it's not stark. It's very lush, actually. It's a very lush movie in his way, but it also is a mix-up of style. I, I, I just really love all of the elements here. You both knew, inviting me on, that I was an unabashed fan of this. So my final thoughts are, it's great. You should watch it. Get yourself your Italian life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I'll, I'll, since I'm in the middle on this, I'll just say, I'll just say, I'm, I think it's inherently watchable. It's not something that I'm going to put on a lot, but I mean, I, I do admire the artistry in this film, even if it's not still something that's like holy for me, but I like a lot of it. Yeah, and I'll say that this is probably 
in the middle of Argento for me. So it's not the film that I go back to the most when I want to put on an Argento film. But every time I've revisited it, I've found new things to appreciate. And I think particularly the humor and the playfulness in the subversion of expectations this go around really appealed to me. So it feels like a good introduction to Giallo if you're new to it as a subgenre. But at the same time, if you're a hardened Argento fan, you're going to see a lot of payoffs here. So in that way, it's almost an all-access kind of text. Like, there's something here for everybody. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, um, yeah, so that will conclude Tenebrae. And before we announce what we're covering next week, Michael, do you have anything you'd like to plug? What What is keeping you busy in these fun times of the world? Uh, well, for those who are out there on the internet earlier during quarantine, uh, I wrote and directed a screen life horror short called Unusual Attachment. I believe at the time of this airing, it will still be my pinned tweet on my page, but we made it entirely remotely and is available for free because we just wanted to create something for people while they're all stuck at home. And I am getting ready to work on a series right now um, with my production partner that we'll be announcing soon. And otherwise, yeah, just find me. I'm causing trouble somewhere about something. And how can they find you? They can find me on Twitter is the best place. It's just my name, at Michael Verratti. If you want to check out Dead for Filth, that's at Dead for Filth on Twitter and wherever podcasts are found. <laughs> and actually, I'm glad you mentioned your shorts uh, because uh, I just wanted to again to add to our housekeeping to listeners that we hope you've been enjoying our new weekly venture into queer horror shorts called Micro Queers. Uh, these mini-sodes are typically about 15 minutes long, and we will include a link to that short in the show notes and, of course, post it all over our social media channels. Speaking of social media channels, oh man, I'm on a roll, you can stay in touch with us by liking our Horror Queers Facebook page or joining our Facebook group. Tweet us or follow us on Instagram at Horror Queers or email us at horrorqueers at gmail.com. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, buy our merch at tpublic.com, and... Whew, if you want more content, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash horrorqueers, where you can sign up for exclusive bonus episodes. Uh, this month, we've got full-length episodes on Antebellum, finally. Yay. We're also going to have an audio commentary on Urban Legend to pair with an episode that will come out later this month. Oh, gee, that was subtle. <laughs> I know, right? Uh, Joe? Yes? What are we going to be covering next week? Oh, Lord. We're gonna keep things a little psychosexual and maybe a little bit boring because of the Camilla Bell of it all, Trace. We're gonna be checking out The Quiet. <laughs> uh, this is a bit of a stretch in terms of calling it a horror film, but I would argue that some critics might have called it horrifying when it came out in 2007. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so this is directed by Jamie Babbitt, who many of you may know as the director of famed cult classic, but I'm a cheerleader. This one is not like that at all. It is, well, it's not intentionally funny, but it is, um, it is a movie, and I really enjoy it, and I am excited to see what people think of it when we make them watch it. <laughs> oh, Lord. Yeah. I feel like this is a return to our camp era. We'll put it that way. You know, admittedly, I haven't seen it in a about 10 years so i don't know if age is gonna make me think differently but yeah a couple content warnings though there is a bit of incest and child molestation in it um it's not seen to my knowledge but it is a major plot point in the film right okay um but yeah so until then again michael Verratti, thank you so much again for coming back we hope to have you back in exactly one year 
<laughs> I will look forward to it, and I will see you then. <laughs> uh, and yeah, so we can cross out Tenebrae. Yes, and cross out Horror Queers. Disgusting Podcast Network, home of creepy and disturbing and terrifying creepy pastas, SCP archives, weekly full cast storytelling, horror queers, genre commentary from an LGBTQ perspective, and the Boo Crew. Horror-centric interviews. Listen free wherever you stream audio and at bloodydisgusting.com slash podcasts.